Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Well, good evening, everybody that's tuning in online, and for those in person. Hello, everyone. This is our first time doing this live with a captive audience. Uh, there are massive numbers of people here. A mess. Yes, standing room only. You're busy over there. Come yes, on. I was just, just already interacting with our little on, online troop. And here with us tonight, we have acclaimed author, writer, <laughs> theologian, Dr. Let's see Ronnie where is McBray. the uh, mute button. There it is. All right, and you're gone. Am I? Yeah, you are. You're gone, and you're back. And I'm back. Uh, this is a follow-up tonight, and we did a, we did a bunch of these during COVID where we would follow up from a Sunday uh, or what have you. Which cameras? Am I supposed to be looking there? Does it matter? That one right there. This one? Okay. And I, I got to the lectionary this past Sunday, and it was in... With the prophet Daniel, and I haven't read Daniel actively in a little while, and it brought back all these memories of how I was taught the book of Daniel, and of course what I said Sunday was, I don't think it means what you think it means, and I certainly don't want to imply that it's just you, I would say it's us, because more times than not, we have been told uh, a specific Interpretive, or given a specific interpretive matrix to understand certain books in the Bible, and we've never been offered an alternative. And some of the alternatives are a bit stronger. And to Daniel 7 in particular, if you don't have a, a rudimentary understanding of Daniel 7, you are actually in a better position than most of us. Because most of us have to unlearn some things in order to move forward to learn something new. But if you've got a fresh uh, slate, you're good to go. Uh, and I don't want to mark all over that slate and become a problem for you later yourself. I just want to give you an alternative tonight to interpreting the, the book of Daniel. Uh, the question that always comes up in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11 is what are all these crazy beasts and all this symbolic language about. And I don't know if we'll answer all of those, but we'll answer, do our best to answer some of those uh, tonight. And that does bring us to our uh, Q&A. Um, if this fatalistic view of Daniel is not the only view, then what are the alternatives? The book of Daniel is part of what we call apocalyptic literature. And that's its that's its genre. And there are a few major pieces of apocalyptic, easy for me to say, apocalyptic literature in the Old and New Testaments. The second half of the book of Daniel, portions of the book of Ezekiel, portions of the book of Joel, portions of the book of Zechariah. And then in the New Testament, 
Matthew 24 and 25, and the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a shock to some people to hear this, but only 1% of the New Testament addresses future events. And less than 2% of the Old Testament addresses future events. Now, if you look at the bestsellers in Christian literature, they're almost all doomsday literature. And they are concentrating heavily on that 1% and 2%. Of course, they would say that the Bible has a lot more in it than that 1% or 2% because they, the, 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 the lens that they wear, that they look through to interpret the scriptures, they see uh, futurism end times everywhere they look. And if your view is to look for it, you'll find it everywhere you look because that's the lens uh, that, that they, are, they are wearing. Uh, it's not anyone's fault that they see Scripture a particular way. We interpret the Bible based on our life experiences, based on what we have been taught, what we've been told, based on what our parents believed or did not believe, based on the time and place of our birth and where we live, uh, we have a completely unique perspective based on those things. But the book of Daniel as apocalyptic literature, and you won't be able to see this tonight, but the folks online will see this. There are five major distinctions of apocalyptic literature, and they certainly apply to Daniel 7. Number one, apocalyptic literature is always written during turbulent, troublesome times. There is never end times literature written when everything is going great. It always emerges when things are bad. All those books I just mentioned where apocalyptic literature comes to the forefront, that is, in each of those cases, they were really difficult times for the Jewish people or the Christian people, and that's when you see you. Uh, this develop. Number two, apocalyptic literature is always dualistic. That is, it is always going to be good versus evil, darkness versus light, God's enemies versus uh, the saints. There's always going to be this battle. Number three, apocalyptic literature is filled with symbolism. And if you start thinking, well, we're going to figure out what every one of these symbols mean. What is this ten-headed goat? Or what is this great day of the Lord that Joel was talking about? What is the great beast or the great harlot in the book of Revelation? Well, we'll see tonight that there are some interpretive tries at what and who those people and things are. But we don't always know and we can't always uh, digest it completely. Number four, apocalyptic literature unveils something. That's what apocalypse means, the unveiling. We sometimes think that apocalypse means the end of all things. Not necessarily. Apocalypse literally means to unveil, to pull back a curtain. Uh, not always in a predictive sense. And Walter Brueggemann talks a lot about the prophetic imagination and how what the prophets were doing were not necessarily telling us everything that was going to happen but they were imagining a better world, a more hopeful world. What would the world look like if the people of God are able to persist in their faith and to maintain hope? And then that's the last characteristic. Apocalyptic literature has the inherent goal of providing hope in difficult times. Uh, the writers took a look at the way things were in the world and then with divine prophetic imagination, attempted 
to reshape that world that victory would await uh, in the end. I think all, uh, no matter what view, all interpreters, all interpreters of, of the book of Daniel would agree with those characteristics, I think, of apocalyptic literature. They would all, it, it wouldn't matter if they were the most conservative interpreter, if they were, uh, you know, the, the, the most progressive interpreter, no matter what school they would come from, they would say, yes, we agree with those characteristics of what apocalyptic literature is, the function that it serves, but most agreement would stop right there because then it would splinter into four major schools. But I'm going to stop and see if there are any questions before we go on. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that. If you're watching online and you have any questions you want to ask, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, if you're watching, let us know where you're watching from. Uh, give us a like and share this to your page as well. That's my promo. That was good. Yeah, yeah. That's, good. that's what I'm here for. That and the coffee. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, All right, I had none for you. <laughs> so, so five major characteristics of apocalyptic literature, and we'll get right to the to the meat of it. Four primary views of the book of Daniel. And we could apply this to all apocalyptic literature. Because if you take this view with Daniel, you're probably taking this view with the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a consistent way of looking at things. So, number one, the preterist view. Preter is a Latin word. It means past. And the preterist view is looking back. And if you take a preterist view of the book of Daniel, you are saying that all of Daniel or at least most of Daniel, has already been fulfilled. It is a historical document describing the events of his time. Uh, this has been the accepted, it was, it's the earliest view of the church. And it is found prominently in Catholicism, Orthodox churches, and Protestant, mainland Protestant churches uh, around the world today. Uh, that there simply remains little that hasn't been completed. That's the past view. Number two, the historicist view. If the preterist is looking back, the historist is looking around. The historist view became very popular during the Reformation in the 1500s. And what the reformers were doing were they were looking at all these symbolic individuals in the Old Testament, like those beasts in the seventh chapter of Daniel, and then they were saying, who do you think this is in the world? And they started trying to identify, you know, the lion that comes out of the sea. Well, that's obviously a lion like that. It's obviously the Pope. The reformers always said it was the Pope. He was the Antichrist and the Roman church. Which one? All of them. Uh, makes sense. That was Calvin's. Calvin was a historicist. Luther was a historicist. And you can't hardly blame them for that given their context. They were in, in, in deep, deep uh, competition against Catholicism. Uh, this view is not, it's a minority view today. It's not held widely anywhere. It has been really absorbed into this third view, and it's the futurist view. So preterist is looking back, the historist is looking around to see who we can identify, and the futurist is looking forward. 
And those with this view believe that the majority of Daniel's visions, along with parts of Ezekiel, the Olivet Discourse, and Matthew, and most of the book of Revelation, has yet to be fulfilled. And this view is the most common view in North American conservative churches. And I say North American. I'm going to come back to this in a minute and, and say a little bit more about it. The first futurist also emerged during the Reformation. Uh, and surprise of all surprises, they were not Protestants. They were Catholics. Two Jesuit priests developed the basics of the futurist view in 1585 as a way of combating all those Protestants who were calling the Pope the Antichrist. And they developed this futurist view so as to put the events of part of the Old Testament and the New Testament far into the future and take the heat off of Rome. I kid you not. Uh, both of the, in fact, all historic, all interpretation erupts from the context of the times, and this one especially so. And then the fourth one, the idealist view, and the idealist view is sometimes called the symbolic view or the allegorical view, and the idealist says that what we read in Daniel, what we read in Revelation is simply the cosmic story of God and evil good versus bad, light versus dark. Some of it's been fulfilled. Some of it's of it hadn't. Who's to say? And this is a very common view today as well. But I can simplify things down to three simple statements. Either Daniel is mostly history, mostly future, or mostly symbolic. So we'll stick with those kind of three views. Those are the three prominent views held across any denominational line today. So, questions? You following comments? I am, yes. Okay. One of the questions was, will this be on Facebook later? Yes, yes, this will be on Facebook. Everything that's recorded on here will be on Facebook later. So if you guys feel like you're missing something and you want to see the pictures that everyone else is seeing, that you're not able to see. I should have stayed at home. <laughs> not yet. Anyway. Let's talk about the futurist view then. Uh, this will include Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11. Uh, specifically, uh, Daniel has an entire series of visions in the second half of his book. The first half of the book is about Daniel's life. What do we know about Daniel? Uh, he was in exile. So Jerusalem was destroyed, 586 B.C., Daniel was bright. Uh, Daniel was apparently handsome. Daniel had everything going for him. And the Babylonians, when they overtook a territory, they went and found the cream of the crop of the conquered people. It was a form of uh, genetic fostering. And they would take those people and take them away to a foreign land, and they would use them in their kingdom. And uh, this was Daniel. This is what happened to Daniel. He was apparently taken from home as a teenager and groomed for an administrative position inside the Babylonian government. You say, well, why would, why would somebody do that to let a foreigner in? It's, it's not like it was a uh, monolithic kingdom. It was the Babylonian empire 
but they ruled over everything from Afghanistan to Northern Africa. And all of those languages, there's no unifying Greek language at this point. It's a very tribal society, and they recognize that their strength would be having diversity in the administrations to be able to communicate with all these different groups. And so that is Daniel's role. And you can read about him and his life in the first half of the book. The second half of the book are Daniel's visions. The futurists look at these visions and say the majority of these have yet to be fulfilled. John Nelson Darby, he was an Irish-American preacher, formed this view in the mid-1800s. And it's not that others had never thought about this, uh, but he really built a coherent system. And it's known today as dispensationalism. And uh, he had a couple partners. Uh, C.I. Schofield was one of them. The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody was another one of them. And today on the popular level, people like John Hagee, Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series, Moody Bible Institute, Hal Lindsey, Dallas Theological Seminary, David Jeremiah, they are all proponents of dispensationalism. And it's what the churches of my youth believed and still believed, believe is what they taught. It was a major part of my theological education, particularly my master's program. It's too complex to summarize in this one Q&A tonight, but I can give a summary as it relates to Daniel. In this series of visions involving these beasts coming out of the water, the futurist dispensational view contends that Daniel was a witness to the rise and the fall of the kingdoms of the world. This view says that Daniel was written about 500 years before Christ, and he predicted the rise of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and the final empire of who has become known as the Antichrist. This is from Daniel chapter 7. I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth, and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts. It had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. And then from Daniel 8. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and the truth was overthrown. And from Daniel 11, his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere, and some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, 
for the appointed time is still to come. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. That was not in all the reading on Sunday. (laughs) Uh, Darby and others viewed this king in Daniel as the final antichrist in the book of Revelation. Now that's, I'm being overly simplified there, but that is the simple answer about who this character is in the book of Daniel as seen through the futurist view. I don't have a slide for the folks online, but listen to this. This is Revelation 13. And listen to how similar this sounds to Daniel. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. The beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. And he was given authority to do whatever he wanted. So the correlation for the futurist then is to take the characters, character in Daniel and connect it to the Antichrist, that's the name commonly given to this person, in Revelation 13 and following. John Nelson Darby, borrowing from the Jesuits, developed this futurist view and it became wildly popular in parts of Great Britain in the mid-1800s. He brought it to the United States where all good entrepreneurs can succeed. Cyrus Schofield adapted his Darby's view into the first true study reference Bible. I've got one at home in my attic. The first Bible I was ever given as a 10 year, when I turned 10 years old and was baptized, my church gave me a C.I. Schofield reference Bible. I, I know this futurist view. Is there, it's a reason, all, is there a reason it's in your attic? Well, it's just where I keep my <laughs> stuff. <laughs> no, it matters. <laughs> it's pretty ragged. It's actually sealed. I mean, I'm not completely without nostalgia. Oh. You know, so it's my baptism Bible. <laughs> so, you know, that's all you've got to say? That's your first comment? Yeah. Okay. So far. So far. So, Darby brings the system to the United States. Schofield adapts it into a study Bible. D.L. Moody accepts it, and it becomes the eschatological backbone of the Moody Bible Institute. So the Bible Institute is established in Chicago in 1889. Schofield's Bible is released in 1909. Schofield's Bible sells 2 million copies over the next couple decades. Do you know why? World War a Great Depression, a Second World War, and the regathering of Israel for the first time in 1900 years. And so when people started reading Schofield and Darby and Moody and seeing this futurist view, they freaked out. And they said, this must be the correct view of the end times. And it was only at the time about 100 years old, if that. And something about it stuck in the Protestant and evangelical North American mind. This view is not held in Africa. 
This view is not held in largely in Europe. This view is not held in China, in the underground church, or in Asia. This is a distinctly Western evangelical Christian view of the end times. And it's, it's, it's a late arriver to the game. Now, no one, God love us, no one ever told me any different till I was past, I had already had a master's degree in theology before anyone ever said to me, well, you know, there's a different way to think about this. And my first reaction was, well, you're a heretic because this is how it is. But uh, some of us, many of us are deeply, deeply immersed with this, with this particular view. Questions? Yeah, on, online we had a question by Judy. Um, Judy Skinner, she had asked, why do you think these specific visions were given to Daniel and John? <laughs> we're going to answer that in a minute. So. All right, Judy. Answer I'll answer that in just a second. Yeah, the, futurist, the futurist would simply say that these were given to Daniel and to John as a means of unveiling the future. Mm-hmm. That's the futurist response to that. It's a good answer. Mm-hmm. Any questions here? Anybody have any questions about anything that Ronnie has shared so far? There's a lot of details, a lot of things that is being unpacked. But don't be shy. Yeah. You don't want to go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll repeat we'll, it. Go ahead, Chris. We'll do our best to repeat. This is this is Chris answering a question from the back room. Great question. The question that Chris asked for those of you that are watching online: the four kingdoms from the futurist view, the last one being the Antichrist. Is that where we are today, or have we moved beyond that? Has it been debunked? Uh, the futurist would say, and this is a this is from dispensationalism. The dispensationalist says that there are dispensations of God's grace. That there was uh, antediluvian times. There's the Old Testament, the time of the law. Then there was the revelation of Christ. There was this church age. There will be a, a great tribulation. There will be a millennial kingdom. There will be the restoration of the Jewish people and then the end of ages. So the dispensationalist has this, and I put one up Sunday in a massive chart. And those charts were on my Sunday school rooms uh, while you were coloring pictures of the lions. We were studying dispensationalism. And so the futurists would say, Chris, that this is all since the regathering of Israel that we're just waiting any second now. Uh, Which leads to some conclusions about how you live your life and what your view of the world is. Mm -hmm. And and so world events in that regard go right to, to, if you have that futurist lens, it looks very much like you're just waiting for the little horn of Daniel 7, Daniel 8, the Antichrist of Romans 13 to appear. And that's why there's always a lot of guessing and dart throwing. You know, it's, it's China, it's, it's Russia, it's the Soviet Union, it's Iran, it's Saudi Arabia. On and on we go. Um, and now in the chatter I hear, the, the discussions even turned inward now within our own country. You know, about, you know, it's this political person, it's this... It's, it's, it's this president or it was that president, which it can't be any of the U.S. presidents. 
because everybody loves the Antichrist when he first appears. <laughs> so we can, you, with a futurist view, you can just wipe all those off the map right now. Uh, don't have to worry about it. Uh, but they would say that it is we're, we're hanging in the balance. A very good question. We have a, a comment from Pam Walker. Oh, she, Pam Walker. So when you're talking about dispensationalism, she said, uh, same experience here. Uh, thought everyone believed that. Then I left the Church of Christ and found others believed differently, which seems to be a, a consensus report from people that have left a similar background. If you were raised fundamentalist Baptist, if you were raised Church of Christ, if you were raised in some disciples' churches, yeah. not all of them, because you you came from the from the reform from the uh, I came from a mix from from that yeah. background, Nazarenes, uh, some conservative Methodists, most Southern Baptists of the last generation, uh, a, almost to, to a person, all Pentecostals hold a futurist view. So if you were raised in those churches. You, this is probably what you got a pretty good dose of. Uh, we watched uh, the Left Behind series. I, I don't know if you guys have all watched that, but we watched the Left Behind movies as like a as a part of our youth group, you know, on a Sunday night, along with The Exorcist because the demons are real, just like yeah, that. That's, yeah. that's quite the combination. <laughs> so, I know. Uh, yeah, that's... I was, that scares I was, me. I was baptized either shortly after or... Yeah, yeah that <laughs> night. <I remember. laughs> it, it scared the... You know yeah, 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 yeah. Well, some of you may be old enough... In those waters. Some of you may be old enough to remember uh, Thief in the Night. Anybody see that old movie? Thief in the Night. Yeah. Was Tom Cruise in that one? No. Oh. Question in the back. Chip. Yes, late, great planet Earth. And because uh, uh, I vaguely remember, because I haven't, but the reference point was the third rebuilding of the temple, right? That is a massive uh, expectation. Chip, to those who were on, online and didn't hear this, Chip said that he read Hal Lindsey uh, when he was in school, and Hal Lindsey talks about a third Jewish temple being built. The reason, if you're a futurist, and you hold that Daniel and Revelation, the latter half of Revelation, have yet to be fulfilled, a temple must be standing in Jerusalem for those events to be in the future. So there's always scuttle going around about the rabbis have got all the furniture ready and they found the red heifer and they're going to... I'm serious. This is this is, this is is real thing. And... and I've known I've known this stuff since I was don't laugh. I've known this stuff since I was a kid. That that if if you ever see there was almost a sense where I hope a war breaks out in the Middle East so the Jews can build their temple. Which is in a nuclear age a terrifying prospect. Not a not a, not something that we anybody should should look forward to. But the futurist, Chip, you're exactly right, and I appreciate you reminding me of that. The futurist view demands that a temple be standing. But wouldn't there also, once we hit that trigger point, wouldn't there also like one generation? It was like within the next generation. Yeah, 
then they would move exactly to the Olivet Discourse where Jesus would say, Verily, verily, I tell you the truth that there are those standing here today who will not taste death until these events. So that's, that's where they get that. So Jesus is speaking, uh, they would say allegorically there, to the future generation. And that's a big piece of dispensationalism, and I, could, I can really get into the weeds on this. Dispensationalists cut the visions of Daniel in half and insert the church age and say that Daniel saw events leading up to the church and then he saw the events leading up to the end of time and we are living in between those moments. Chris's head is glare. Yeah, he's got a lot of shine. A lot of shine. <laughs> For those of you that didn't hear, Chris's head has a glare. Okay. <laughs> I can't put the camera directly on. Yeah, we can't do it. No, he's off, he's off camera. He's yeah, off camera. He's back on camera, but not directly. So real, real quick, let me talk about the, the preterist view, an alternative view to Daniel. How do and you spell preterist? P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Just in case people at home were yeah, confused P- with predator. No, preterist. Preterist. Like towards an No, preterist. Preterist. Full confession, I am a preterist in relation to to Daniel and Revelation. Uh, this is the prescription lenses through which I read Daniel and Revelation. Now, these have not always been the lenses through which I have read these scriptures. Uh, but your lenses can change over time. When I was eight years old, nine years old, whatever first, second grade is, I got a brand new pair of glasses because I couldn't read the the chalkboard, and those changed my life. And I wore glasses till I was 30 years old. And then another remarkable thing happened. I had LASIK surgery. And I, I realized then that those little green blobs are actually leaves on a tree. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it was like, it was like Jesus had washed the dirt off the blind man's eyes. It was that, it was that amazing to me. And now I got these and reading glasses. So everything's gone wrong again. The point is, we all know what it's like to change our lenses to help our view. And when you change interpretations, don't let anyone ever tell you, well, you're just not taking the the Bible seriously anymore. That's not what it means at all. It simply means that my life experiences and my understanding of Scripture are now requiring that I look through a little bit different set of lenses. So that's what I'm offering here when we're talking about the preterist view. The futurist view is only acceptable if one dates the writing of Daniel at 500 years before Christ. And traditionally that was the case, making everything that Daniel wrote centuries in the future. But what we now know, and what has become known since Darby's system was devised, over the last 150 years, there have been scores and scores of manuscript discoveries. And every biblical scholar, every biblical scholar except futurist, date the book of Daniel at 160 B.C., That changes everything. 
Daniel was not writing to predict the future. Daniel is writing commentary on the world events in which he was living. Uh, that is a massive shift uh, in, in, in understanding. That means that when we read Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, let's keep those texts. Nobody's throwing those out. Let's read them now, given what was going on in Jerusalem at around 160 B.C. I wonder what was going on. I'm glad you asked. In 323, and I think I have a slide for folks watching. In 323 B.C., just a little bit of history lesson, and if you did the Christian history thing or, or journey through the Bible on my winter Bible study, you've heard this before, but I'll repeat myself. In 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died. And he left behind, at 32 years of age, the greatest single kingdom that had ever uh, marched across the face of the earth. He held Europe all the way to India, North Africa. No one had ever conquered so much and so fast. When he died, he had no heir. And his kingdom was splintered into four major pieces. The Seleucians took over what is now Palestine, all the way down to Egypt. They didn't get Egypt. They warred with Egypt for years. They took what is now Afghanistan, Syria, uh, Iran, Iraq, that area. And it's described actually very well in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, not as a prediction, but as history. If you will read Daniel 8, and I don't have time to read it all tonight, you will read about this speedy little goat that tramples the entire world and dies suddenly. Daniel is not predicting. Daniel is commenting on Alexander the Great. The solutions rule Palestine for almost 200 years. And in 175 BC, a man by the name of Antiochus IV, like Antioch, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes is his full name, invaded Jerusalem personally. He did not send an army. And in about 168 B.C., overran the temple, desecrated the altar, and did the worst thing that he could have done as a Gentile. He sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar to the god Zeus. And it set off a war that would last for seven years, a war that we know as the Maccabean Rebellion. And it's celebrated still in Jewish life today by the Festival of Lights. Do you know what that is? Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is celebrated because of the events that are unfolding late in the book of Daniel. Uh, so here's what Antiochus did. He goes in, he desecrates the temple, and then he says, and he, he kills the, the high priest publicly, murders the high priest in front of everybody. And then he turns to the nobles of Jerusalem and says, essentially, I'll leave you alone, uh, but you're going to have to have a high priest, and whoever can come up with the most money, you'll be my high priest. Politics as usual. So he hires a guy named Jason, 
And Jason is a royal member of what's left over of the Jewish dynasty. He becomes uh, the high priest. And as soon as Antiochus leaves town, a man named Matthias and his sons, four sons, raid the temple. They murder Jason in revenge for selling out and all hell breaks loose. And that war would continue all the way into about 130 years before Christ. The Maccabeans would win and would be one of the only provinces in all of the Middle East to gain their independence in the Greek empires. They celebrate Hanukkah. They would remain free to about 60 years before Christ. Maccabean means hammer in Hebrew. They were the hammers and they brought it and they became heroes. It transformed the Jewish religion. It transformed the Jewish society. The Maccabean revolt led to the emergence of the Sadducees as rulers of the temple. It led to the Pharisees as the common people, the pious ones who would become Jesus' sparring partners. And it changed Jewish theology that for the first time in all of Jewish history, they developed an afterlife. Because if these great heroes are dying in battle to free the temple, they can't just be dying and going into nothingness. There must be something else. And it's the Pharisees who helped develop an afterlife that, the Christi- that Christianity clung to and developed further with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you go read Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and you take off your futurist lens and you put on your preterist lens and read those chapters you will be amazed at the sudden clarity that you see it is not about future events so much as it it is about events that have already been fulfilled quick questions Let let me ask you this did you get any eschatology in your master's program in my master's program, no. No. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I had a, a, a lot of leadership courses, you know, how to run and operate the church, lead it through change, that kind of stuff. But um, light on the theological side, which is uh, not unusual. That's not, that's and, not unusual. In, in, some, uh, in some of my work, in some of the courses, they would ask you, what's your theological uh, approach to this particular uh, topic? Or mm-hmm. like, so leading the church through change, what's your theological approach to that? Right. Yeah, but not how do you read Daniel, Revelation? Uh, what does the cross mean? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah so uh, I'm like, honestly, yeah, I'm not afraid to say this. I'm like a lot of people listening tonight. So much of this is um, kind of newer information. Um, you know, obviously, I, I grew up in the tradition that had the dispensationalist view of. You know, all these all these things are future tense. All these things are going to happen in the future, or we're at least in the end times, and you know we're going to be raptured up. So get ready, you know that yeah. type of thing. Uh, but no, even in my undergrad work, uh, there in, in doctrine, in my doctrinal classes and um, apologetics, we would go over the stuff, but not not this detailed. Not like, when was the book of Daniel written? Why does that change everything? <laughs> you know, you know I, something I've found in talking to, to ordained ministers 
and I would say something like, you know, you know, we get we, if you're around a bunch of preachers long enough, you're going to start arguing about something. That's just how it's going to be. And and most of the times they're pretty it's pretty friendly. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, shut up. Uh, most of the time it's pretty friendly in, in in that engagement, and inevitably end time stuff comes up, and uh, you ask, you know. The, the average classically trained minister, do you know who Antiochus Epiphanes is? And they don't. Hmm. Do you ask, and if you ask them, have you ever heard of Josephus, the Jewish uh, historian? And they don't. And. They haven't even heard of Josephus? I mean. Mm-mm. There is. Very there, rarely. There is a woefully. Uh, You preach on shit. Come on, Lord. Take the mic. Uh, you're exactly right. And I'm, to answer your question, I'm going to I'm going to lean on on Josephus pretty hard here in just a second. Uh, about okay, if that's the view of Daniel, what do we do with Revelation mm-hmm. in this similar language? And, and I'll get to that in just a second. But and I'm not I'm not throwing stones because I'm a product of that same theological education. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I'm not saying this, look at me. I've got a bachelor's work, master's degree, doctorate degree, postdoctorate studies in ethics. And I think I heard uh, Josephus' name one time. Well, in and, the Church of Christ uh, college I went to, we talked about it. Well, good, good. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But you know what? A girl... Being educated in a very conservative seminary, this is this is the truth. If it was outside the Bible, it could not be trusted. Oh yeah. So, uh, Tom, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you in just a second. I've got a quote here, real quick. This is, uh, and I do have a slide for the folks at home. This is from Second Maccabees. Second Maccabees. You want me to read it, please? Second Maccabees five. Now, before you read, let me let me do do the introduction. Second yes. Maccabees is an apocryphal book. I'm not saying it's scripture, but it is helpful. This is an account. First and Second Maccabees is written during the Testaments, so it's written after Daniel, before Mark, the first gospel that we know to have been written, and it talks about this war of Jewish liberation. That the Jews fought. And this is a direct reference here. It's not even veiled to Antiochus Epiphanes. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. It it was such a horrific impact on the Jewish psyche that when the Romans arrive, they don't even resist them. And by the time Christ is on the scene and everyone is afraid, you know, don't cause any trouble. Rome will come and take our place from us. 
this is in their, this is, great grandparents would still tell stories of these events. And it lingered, you know, in that Jewish imagination. Tom. So, so just for those that didn't hear, Tom was mentioning that in, in his study in seminary that whenever they looked at the minor prophets, the prophets, uh, the, their studies uh, about prophecy were looking forward to Christ and not necessarily beyond. Is that correct? Did I say that? Okay. So to a preterist view of Revelation 13 and following, when the book of Revelation was written, it is the end of the first century. And from mid-century to end of the century, things had changed. In the middle of the century, Paul could say something like, be subject for the Lord's sake to those who rule over you. Or Simon Peter could say, uh, The emperor or the ruler has been sent by God, be obedient. By the end of the first century, things had changed, primarily because of Nero. Nero laid waste to Christians in the Roman Empire. It is a historical fact. One of the most evil men to ever live. His nickname was the beast. Now this is 66, 67 AD. He is the one who had the apostle Paul executed. He was the primary enemy of the church. When he died, everyone thought things will get better. But here's what happened. He is of such pure evil that finally both Jewish and Christians could no longer abide him and the Jewish people once again rebelled against Rome. They rebelled just as they had rebelled against Antiochus Epiphany. And Nero sent a man named Flavius Vaspian, his general, to go level the city of Jerusalem just like it had been leveled before. We know this from historical accounts. We know this primarily from Josephus, the Jewish historian, and, and Roman historians. Vespasian arrives on the scene. He lays siege to the city. Just as the city is about to fall, Nero dies in Rome. And everyone thought God has intervened. Because Vespasian immediately left the city of Jerusalem and went to Rome. Do you know what happened when he got there? He took the Roman throne by force. 
So he marched his army from Jerusalem back to Rome and became the emperor of the Roman Empire immediately after Nero. Oh my God, you thought you had only escaped. Now the guy that was going to destroy your city is in charge. What does he do? He sends his son Titus back to Jerusalem to finish the job. Titus arrives 69 AD. By 70 AD, Jerusalem has fallen. The Jews were scattered, and it was not until 19... It was such a thorough job that it took 1,900 years for them to be regathered. The city of Jerusalem was a wasteland, burned to the ground. Vespasian dies. Titus becomes emperor. Titus rules for a couple years, horrific against Jews and Christians in the empire. Mercifully, he dies. Everybody thinks, finally, we're finally going to escape this. And then what happens is little brother Domitian becomes emperor. So from Nero to Domitian, you have what's called in history the Flavian dynasty. So it's roughly from about 65 AD to 100 AD, 35 years of nothing but brutal oppression for Jew and Christian alike. So let's, well, a couple more things. This is Domitian, the the last of the empires. And the book of Revelation is written, we think, primarily during his reign with all those others as his prelude. He insisted that people call him the Lord of the earth. And to sing, holy, holy, holy is he, the Lord God Almighty. When you read that in the book of Revelation, that does not originate with Christians. It originates from decrees that have been discovered all over the ancient Roman Empire. And what the writer of Revelation does is hijacks emperor language and puts it in the mouths of Christians praising Jesus. It's, it's, it's pretty slick. Uh, it really is. And so it was an act of resistance. Here, here are a few other quotes. A hundred different religious inscriptions from ancient Ephesus have been recovered. Two dozen of them refer to worshiping the emperor as God. Here are a few of them to Domitian. The emperor Caesar, son of God, from his divine revenues, has provided to build for us this temple. To Domitian, the despotos deus, the master and God of the universe. Here is Domitian, the pontifex maximus, the great high priest, And four, there is a relief of Domitian holding a globe in his hands. And on the globe sits a naked child. And the inscription says, the divine creator, conqueror of the world, and his son, the son of God. Take all that language, bring it to the book of Revelation. And you see immediately that what the writer of Revelation has done is gone back to the genius of Daniel and is retelling that story in his own day about the evil men in his own day that are threatening to destroy uh, everything that is. So you have, in the immediate context, Vespasian, then his eldest son Titus, his younger son Domitian, all ruling the Roman Empire for the last 30, 35 years of the first century. These are the men who destroyed the birthplace of Christianity. They destroyed the Jewish temple uh, all Christians are alarmed at what they are doing. And the Flavians, for all practical purpose, were the second coming of Antiochus Epiphany. And even when Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, there will come a time when 
He will desecrate and, and commit sacrilege against the temple. It's all going back to these Roman rulers at the end. So again, with the Flavian dynasty and Nero in mind, sit down, start reading at Revelation 4 going forward, and immediately so much of the what is going on here falls away. And you realize that it's a polemic written during the time to critique the Romans themselves. Now, what does that mean about us? What do we got to do now? What's our end times? Well, here's the thing. There's not much to figure out about the future because we don't know. But there is a lot to learn from the past. And as we know, if we don't learn from the past, we know what? We are doomed to repeat it. And every time you see these cycles of, of oppression of any people, the cycles of Antiochus Epiphanes, the cycle of those Roman rulers, it's the same game that plays out over and over. And the message to the persecuted are always the same. Don't give up because these who, who produce evil, they will not last forever. And that's what apocalyptic literature is is for. Why do you suppose um, a vast majority of evangelicals in our time today are so caught up in the futuristic uh, viewpoint? Like, oh, what does it do for their psyche to hold to that particular view versus the preterist view? Why are they so I, I, enthralled with holding on to that? Well, first of all, I don't think I don't think there has been wide exposure of other views in those contexts. Number one, yeah, and number two, there is something almost magical about knowing the secret of what's coming next. <laughs> I have the secret sauce. I mean, that is powerful, mm-hmm. and it's powerful in a world that is so con- as connected uh, as ours. And plus, if you tell someone with a futurist view. And this really got me a few years ago when, when, you know, good Protestant kid that I am. You tell someone that Darby's creation is the product of Jesuits from the Middle Ages and that it's a fairly new interpretation of Scripture, you're probably going to have to fight that person. <laughs> because they they don't know that. Mm. They don't know that. And I'm not saying, oh, I know, and they're ignorant. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but look, I've talked solid for an hour and covered... I'm sorry. And, and covered, you know, a thousand years of history. And I can't do that on a Sunday morning. No, you can't. People would just be fall. Just wait until next week. You know, you know I mean, they, they would... Right. They, they would They would make it. Because, you know, it's a lot to take in. Mm. But we haven't, if our seminaries aren't teaching our, our pastors this, pastors can't teach it. You, you can't tell somebody what you, what you don't know. That's correct. And you can't yeah. look for something. You can't see something if you don't know to look for it. Mm-hmm. I also think, uh, just to add to it, I think it gives a sense of hope. For people that hold that particular view, like the escapism, you know, if we if we just hold on long enough, if, we, if we're just faithful enough, at some point, you know, God will intervene. 
and, and, and there's the, the longing and the holding out for that. And, you know, I can, I can think back to, what was it, 2010? There, the world was supposed to end by this, you know, a large group of those, uh, uh, David Jeremiah, uh, his uh, followers, a lot of them were predicting the end of the world because of Daniel and, and Revelation. I remember passing a caravan of vehicles that had it post, like, plastered on their vehicle. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, I've lived long enough now to see, to have seen the world's going to, 88 reasons why the world's going to end in 1988. 95 reasons. Uh, I can remember uh, 1990, 1991-ish, Chris will help me with this, the, the, the Gulf War was just about to break out, and I was a young man uh, already in college, and, you know, pastor get up and saying, you know, Saddam Hussein, he said Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. And he is going to uh, turn all of Iraq's oil into the Persian Gulf and light it afire. And it's going to bring down America. And, you know, when you're a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid sitting there listening to that, and I had heard this stuff my whole life anyway, but I didn't know who, you know, Anwar Sadat was in the 70s or anything. And suddenly I'm a young adult and I'm like, whoa, well, that is, that is powerful. To think, and then what you find is I'm reading the headlines and reading the Bible, reading the headlines, reading the Bible, and you start to become a historicist. Okay, who is this little horn in front of Daniel 8 out on the world stage today? Uh, and it, it's a relief in many ways to come to, to a conclusion to say, you know, this wasn't written to frighten anybody. It was written to encourage people, theological commentary on the events of the day, usable for every future generation that follows, without having to figure it all out. That is a liberation in so many ways. Um, can I, can I uh, open the door, yeah. the window, into a piece of our conversation we had last week? We, we were kind of uh, talking about this. He was preparing for uh, Sunday's message, and he was talking about, you know, our imposition on on Scripture and that kind of thing. So my my next question would be, um, what, in light of this, the preterist view, okay, if, if we're holding to, okay, scholars believe that the book was written a little bit later, okay, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's looking back, but it's also writing and commenting on the present, Mm-hmm. How does that shift and change those stories? You know, we we look at. <laughs> I, I was telling jokes about Daniel and the lion's den before we started. So if I crack up, it's because I'm thinking of that. But what does it do to those stories? What does it do to uh, Daniel standing, you know, bowing down three times a day in prayer, and, and in uh, contrast to what it, uh, you know the, you, you, they're asking him to sure. do? You don't lose anything. It becomes becomes a much bigger story. Now, I think Daniel is an actual person. Uh, I I think the first half of the book are experiences that he had. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Masoretes who put that text together also used the story of Daniel to help the entire nation. When Daniel goes into that lion's den, I'm not saying that Daniel didn't literally go into a lion's den, but I am saying, (laughs) stop it, but I am saying that the people of Israel had been taken captive 
into the world power of the day, mm-hmm. the Babylonians, always symbolized, symbolized as a mighty lion, and Israel itself had been cast into the lion's den. Mm-hmm. It is an individual story that speaks to a larger point. So you don't lose anything. It's a historical narrative with symbolic uh, value and meaning to it. Right. Right. And if we get hung up on, you know, well, Jesus mentioned Daniel, so Daniel, all this had to literally happen. Yeah. Then then we have, we've sort of lost the plot of what the whole story is about. Uh, there are people that are, that are futurist simply because Jesus quoted Daniel. Okay? Mm-hmm. See there, Jesus quoted Daniel as, and he quoted this prediction. Well, Daniel's book was accepted scripture at the time of Jesus. Why wouldn't he quote him? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it defeats or changes, you know, an entire systematic view uh, of the Old and New Testament. And I, I kind of wanted to point out just real quick. Um, Five minutes and we're done. Yeah, if, and if you guys have any questions, please feel free to jump up and ask at any time. But uh, something that you had mentioned, I think, at the very beginning was just uh, when we approach the text, we approach the text with our uh, contextualized lives. We come with the preconceived ideas yes. based on our experiences and whatnot. And that's something I always share um, uh, that I'm passionate about when, when reading the Bible we have to be extremely careful in how we how we come to it and how we we read it because of that mm-hmm. um, because it changes everything. Um, if you have a particular view of who God is, like you, you would you know fill in the blank, God is love, or God is power, or God is omnipresent. However, you answer that question, that really predetermines how you're going to read the text. Uh, It's going to change everything about how you read the text. So if we approach the the text carefully and prayerfully, um, not with an idea that this has to be literal, because there are a a, a lot of people that think, as you're uh, pointing out about Jesus um, um, sharing the text from Daniel, uh, of referencing him, if we approach it as everything has to be literal or none of it is, then we're losing the plot. Mm-hmm. We're losing the, the point and the focus mm-hmm. of the overarching story uh, of God's redemptive love. Um, and, and, and I think mainly we have to we, we, we just have to be humble with our interpretations and realize that you know there's a lot of holy ignorance here. We don't know all the answers. We're really if, if we start there, you know we might actually learn something. Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap up with a, with a quick story that'll help. I think what, to your point about the context and and how interpretations can be different. Uh, you've met Johnny, our guide in Bethlehem years ago. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Johnny met us on the inside of the of the wall there as you go into the West Bank out of uh, Jerusalem and toward Bethlehem. And Johnny is a Orthodox Christian, Greek Orthodox Christian, living in the Holy Land. There's a few 10,000 or so left living in that particular part of the West Bank. And I've been on that bus with him many times now. And, and after this bus ride, we always go to this shop and people are shopping. And 
buying jewelry and 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 uh, Betty's bought a beautiful jewelry there, and uh, that's all well and good. My wife has bought beautiful jewelry there. I hate that stop because I've been there enough and I don't want to go back. So I just sit down and talk to people. And Johnny and I were talking last time I was there. And we got to talking about end time stuff. Here is this Orthodox Christian in Bethlehem. Do you know who he thinks the Antichrist is? America. Well, you say, well, how could he come to that conclusion? Have we lived his life? Do we live in the West Bank? No, we don't. And when he first said it, I was like, what? Uh, what do you mean? But the longer he talked, I could appreciate his perspective because he has not lived my life and I haven't lived his life. Is he a Christian? You bet he's a Christian. Is he a Christian in circumstances far more difficult than any of us live in? Absolutely. All of his neighbors are angry Islamic young men. He's not welcome inside the city of Jerusalem because he's a Palestinian. He's an Arab Greek Christian. And we have more in common with him based on that alone than Half the people in the world. But his perspective is so much different simply because of where he has lived and the experiences that he has had. So we just we better be real careful making definitive statements about this is exactly what this means, especially when it comes to, to apocalyptic literature. It should keep us humble. It should keep us infused with hope that evil does not, in any generation, at any time, evil does not get the last word. And that's, uh, that's what Daniel 7 is about. Thanks for coming tonight. Appreciate that. Thanks for, for watching tonight, wherever, whichever camera I'm supposed to be. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.